Hi, this is Kate from ADHD Kids Can Thrive, and today I have a very special guest with me that I'm looking forward to speaking to. Her name is Melissa Jackson. She's an educational consultant and neurodiversity advocate. She's a former educator in the special ed and general education settings. She's certified in twice exceptional education, and you can find more about Melissa at theneurodiversityadvocate.com. Thank you, Melissa, for being here. Thanks for having me, Kate. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's start kind of from the beginning of your story about how you got into this kind of work. I think you have a personal journey of being neurodiverse. Right. Yes. So I myself am neurodivergent. So I grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, public school education, undiagnosed dyslexic child with ADHD. And, um, you know, back then there was just very little awareness as far as what it meant to be neurodivergent. And, and so I was just kind of that kid that everyone knew was bright, but for some reason school was just hard and it didn't really make sense, right? That I just kind of went through the motions. And like many um, young girls with ADHD, I, you know, I wasn't a behavioral problem. I was a rule follower. I, um, in hindsight, looking back, I learned how to mask my neurodivergence from a very young age. So I was professional at just kind of flying under the radar, you know, yeah. and um, and so I just kind of bumped along. But school was really a stressful, anxiety-provoking place for me because although outside, you know, from the outside looking in, I looked calm and collected and I wasn't disrupting anything, but inside there was a lot of stress and turmoil and that manifested in physical symptoms for me. Like my, my hair fell out throughout my grade school years and as diagnosed as stress-induced alopecia and no one really quite knew why. And then I would have chronic stomach aches and no one quite knew why. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I was much, much older. And even after I had spent time teaching in both the general education and special education classrooms, and I was a mother and I was put in this position where my own child was having difficulty reading. And it was just very obvious she was super bright from a young age and yet she was having these struggles. And um, what where I spent the most time was teaching first grade and teaching kids how to read. And that was actually like my passion. I loved it. And so it was very eye-opening when I found myself, my tools exhausted in this situation and not knowing what to do and going to her teachers and them scratching their heads as well. And, and as looking at each other, all as educators who are supposed to be the professionals in the field right. and going, why don't we know what's going on or what to do? And that's really the moment that led me into this field of neurodiversity and prompted me to go back to school and prompted me to really do this deep dive into understanding what, why don't we as teachers know how to support this population of students? And so, um, you know, I feel like I really come at this from a very unique lens in the sense of that I've walked this personally. I, I know the pain of, of walking it as a parent, wa watching your child go through the same, you know, experiences that, that I went through 30 years earlier and not much seemed to have changed. Right. And, 
also being the teacher who wasn't provided the tools in my education courses on how to identify and support these students. So I feel like I come at it from a really comprehensive lens that um, I see it from a lot of angles and um, I just have a lot of compassion for everyone involved. Yeah. Okay. So did you ever get officially diagnosed? I did. So when I was in high school, in ninth grade, uh, my parents took me to a psychiatrist and I got an official diagnosis and I, they put me on Ritalin at the time. And that helped me a lot through high school and college to focus. Um, and it was kind of this eye-opening experience of, um, oh, uh, if I pay attention, I'm so much smarter. <laughs> you know, I was like, kind of like yeah. those messages that I'd received from my youth of like, I didn't know in my grade school years that I had difficulty regulating my attention. I just thought, well, the teacher calls on me and I my head's in the clouds and I don't know the answer. That means I'm not smart, right? And so right. I internalized all of this negative messaging, you know, spoken and unspoken. And um, so, yeah, that was really a confidence booster once I realized how intelligent I was when I listened. Um, so that was a tool that did work for me during that period. Okay. And are you dyslexic as well? Do you have the attention and the learning? I do. And that I didn't get diagnosed so much later till I was 40 because it was my daughter's diagnosis of dyslexia that sort of brought me full circle and made my whole life make sense. And it was like, oh, that's why I still have a panic attack to this day. If you ask me to read out loud, you know, it's like (laughs) that, that experience, um, was real for me too, but I, I just, sort of, you know, bobbed along and it was, I I got it enough and I wasn't falling behind enough that um, I was able to pull it off, but it was internally a lot to hold. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have an interesting, okay. And then your daughter, so you have a daughter, how old is she now? My daughter's 11 and I have a son who's also 14. Okay. And so when your daughter hit first grade, that's when she started having a hard time reading and learning started to show up and the school, and you found that the school wasn't putting the right systems in place to support her. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, um, is she reading now? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. She's in fifth grade now. And I mean, it's, we've done a lot since then and she's doing really, really well, but, um, yeah, it was just that moment where, um, you know, I realized this really stems from our teacher education um, systems because we're not providing educators with information on neurodiversity. So, you know, bringing in professional development for our educators who are already in the classroom and bringing that curriculum into our schools of education is just imperative because you know, there's, the, there's a lack of awareness around how to serve these kids. And yeah. And from the educators, right? Correct. Yeah. Because they just don't get the training when they, they go don't. to college. Right. No. Right. And no yeah. judgment. Cause I was one of them, you know, yeah. it, it just is. It's just not part yeah. of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell us what you do now to help parents who may yeah, have so- a child who's neurodiverse. Right. So now what I do is I support other families who are going through a similar experience as what I went through. So um, I provide families with support once they've had a formal diagnostic evaluation. I will help them in interpreting that information and then providing additional strength-based assessments to get a more comprehensive 
perspective on the child, because so often these reports that come back are really written from a deficit-based lens of here are all the things that's wrong with the kids and yeah. here's how we fix them. And, um, you know, it really has a, a huge impact on kids' self-esteem when all we're doing is remediating their weaknesses and not identifying areas that they shine, not really bringing in areas that they're good at to leverage the areas that they struggle. And so my whole approach is really coming from this strength-based perspective and how do we shift the narrative Let's look at the data we have. Let's look for those pockets of strength and those pockets of weakness and supplement it with some more strength-based assessments to really get a bigger picture about what who is this child, what's going on with them, and how can we serve them in ways that are going to build them up, build their confidence, create that buy-in to want to engage in school because we're, we're recognizing what they do well and finding ways to bring that into their days. And so I try to support parents in, you know, just better understanding their child's learning profile, providing them with language tools, resources, in order to walk into those meetings to be a, a collaborative member of the team who can contribute to writing those goals and accommodations and um, just creating safer environments for these kids. Yeah. Okay. So you do testing that kind of features what a child can do well when it comes to academics. Yes. So it's, it's academic, okay. it's um, personality. It's um, yeah, it's a, it's a combination. It's interest-based. So it's, it's several assessments. It's actually called the suite of tools and Dr. Susan Baum and Dr. Robin Shader um, created this strength-based assessments. And they're actually the, um, who uh, Susan Baum is kind of the, <laughs> the go-to in the 2E world. And she's the provost of my graduate school. So she created these strength-based assessments that really allow us to better understand how kids thrive and how we can incorporate that into the goals and accommodations we create for them. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is in addition, so you get an IEP, let's say you go to a public school, right? You do, or even if you go to a psychologist to get a analysis, you know, a to establish a 504 or IEP, they're not looking, they're not running these tests, no. right? They're just saying these are where your child is having deficits Perfect. And then here's a whole host of accommodations that are just standard. It doesn't mean that those accommodations are going to actually support your child, right? Correct. It just means these are the standard accommodations we give kids who look like your child. Yes. Okay. So you kind of focus on, which was really good, I think, for parents and the child, right? Because it can be really depressing, after you go through this testing it is. to see yeah. what your challenges are. Okay. Right. So how do you work with the school and how do you get the school to buy in to accommodating the child in a way that works for them? Yeah. I don't work directly with schools at this point. Um, my focus is really on in supporting parents and advocating for their children. So that is just such, it depends on your school, right? It depends how receptive that environment is. Are they a neurodiversity affirming institution that is open and wants to collaborate in this way? But parents are, you know, active members of those IEP teams and 504 plans and their concerns and their input is valuable. And so the more we can empower parents to come in prepared with 
with that information to help guide the types of goals, the types of accommodations that are created, um, you know, the better that's going to translate to the kid's experience. Right. Okay. Can you give me some examples of some accommodations Yeah, that you might advocate for that aren't part of like a standard Right. Okay. Accommodation. Um, so it's really going to be about looking at a child's, um, even when you get their formal evaluation, that isn't a strength-based evaluation. You can look at the subtests on those types of, of assessments and determine, okay, they've got these pockets of, especially in a twice exceptional child, you're going to have these really, these pockets of highs and lows. But even in um, kids who aren't too e, you're going to look for areas where they are doing better, right? Where they have strengths because we all have different areas of strength. And so right. finding those pockets and maybe it is the kid with ADHD who really needs to move. You know, maybe it's the kid who's dyslexic, who is highly um, creative and needs more um, visual impact, uh, visual input. Um, you know, it's finding what, that child needs, what that child does well, and how can we bring that in to support them? So for example, maybe it's a child that doesn't do well with rote memorization and spelling. So rather than doing the traditional spelling list, we're going to allow them to illustrate a picture and draw a word next to it. It's the kid that needs to move. So they are going to get to go outside and bounce the basketball or jump on a trampoline or, you know, move their body while they orally say their words. Like it's about finding ways that that child excels and bringing it in to meet the same end goal, right? But giving yeah. options. And I find that the more you can give options to everybody, it really normalizes that stigma of like, this kid needs something different or special, which can really have an impact on kids' self-esteem when they feel like I'm singled out, something's wrong with me. Everyone else is writing their spelling words this way and I'm out here jumping rope. You know, it's like, I right. want to feel like here's a list of options because what we know is that what serves neurodivergent students works for all kids. So if we can just bring more options to create more flexibility, autonomy um, for everyone, then yeah. it really reduces that stigma for those kids who need it a different way. Right. To excel. Yeah. yeah. I actually think listening to you too, Melissa, is if you live like in a bigger area, mm -hmm. um, like a bigger city where there's there are options in different yeah. ways of getting an education, um, that when you do figure out, when you look at not just where they're deficient, but where they excel and in ways they can excel, that there are options for choosing a school that's a better fit for your child. You right? raise such a great point because I think so often we look at like where, who's going to, um, you know, provide the accommodation that that fixes the deficit. and And it's really important to like, what school offers opportunities that are in alignment with what lights my kid up? You know what I mean? Like if right. your kid is a super active kid and loves sports, well, let's make sure there's that opportunity for them there. If they're super right. creative and they need that outlet for creative expression, like let's make sure that that's there for them because that is just such a critical piece in building confidence and just getting kids to want to engage in even the hard stuff. You know, when we feel good about ourselves and we are acknowledged for things we do well, and we're given opportunities to do a little bit of that each day, it builds the 
the the confidence to move through those challenging times that are gonna yeah. come, right? Right. And so it's just a really important piece. Yeah. It fuels their self-esteem, right? Exactly. And builds their resiliency. Right. All the things that we want to do as parents. Okay. So why don't you give us a proper definition of what a neurodivergent brain is? Okay. So we are all neurodiverse. This is how I like to talk about it. So basically we all have unique neurotypes in the sea of neurodiversity. So our brains are each as unique as our, as our fingerprints, like everyone's brain is unique. So we're all neurodiverse. However, we are not all neurodivergent. So there's neurotypicals and then everyone else is neurodivergent. So if you have dyslexia, autism, ADHD, anything that falls outside of a neurotypical brain wiring is considered neurodivergent. So it's really there's really a, a differentiation in saying someone is neurodiverse versus neurodivergent because we're all neurodiverse. Does that make right. sense? Okay. So anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. is that considered neurodivergent if you suffer or struggle with anxiety or depression? Um, that's a, that's a good question. And I don't know if I have the perfect answer for that. Um, Or is it more neurological differences in your brain makes you neurodivergent? Right. That's the more, that is how I think of it, but I don't want to make that statement without like fully knowing. (laughs) Okay. Well, I was just just curious because a lot of um, neurological disorders like ADHD and learning disabilities, you can have periods of suffering from depression or anxiety, right? But then I was also reading, you know, I think the way just our society is wired right now, so many people are struggling with anxiety and depression, especially adolescents. Correct. So are they considered neurodiverse or neurodivergent? You know, it's a big part of that generation that's really struggling with their mental health. And so it's almost seeming like we're more neurodivergent than we are neurotypical. If that right. Makes sense. Yeah, you raise a good point. I don't I haven't thought of um, mental health as falling into that category, although I know, you know, neurodivergent people often struggle with mental health, you know, right. anxiety and depression is very common among people with ADHD and different um, forms of neurodivergent and divergence and, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I, I have, I know personally, I think that a lot of it can stem from this, um, you know, the messaging we, we, we receive as neurodivergent people to fit into the neurotypical dominant culture, right? There's a lot of messaging about that being the right way or the good way or the better way. And when you're constantly feeling like you kind of can't keep up in a world that wasn't really designed for your neurotype, it can create a lot of negative self-talk and, um, can really lead to anxiety and depression and some of these other mental health struggles. Yeah. Okay. So what percentage of the population is neurodivergent? You know, it's so interesting you asked that because I just was reading an article recently, um, a study that came out, was conducted in 2022 um, from Learn, it was a Learnfully Neurodivergent Report. And they found that over 40% of kids in U.S. schools 
have a learning difference. 40, uh, over 40%. I was, I thought that I was actually really. I kind of believe that, which is yeah. kind of where my questioning was going with you. That yeah. is, you know, if so many people are struggling with their mental health, it's probably, it's a higher number than we would all think on people who really are neuro- neurodivergent. We're probably typical. Isn't really a thing is what like, my what whole is point typical, is. Right? <laughs> right. What is normal? What is, you know, it's kind of this predetermined like pocket of the population that we picked to be like the standard normal, the standard. And it's like, it's really not real, right? Yeah. It's like, we're actually all just neurodiverse. And there's this one pocket that kind of got lucky <laughs> put on this pedestal is the better way to be. But the truth is it's all valid. And we really benefit as a society and as a culture when we start embracing that outlook. And I think that's really what also normalizes differences for kids in school. When we just provide more choice and flexibility and acceptance of different ways of doing things, different ways of coming to the same outcome, right? Like we can have right. the same objective in class, but we can get it at it at 10 different ways. You know what I mean? There's not one right way to do it. And the more we can embrace that as that is normal, I think that it really will support mental health of our young kids in school who are suffering and feel like I don't fit in or I don't belong or something's wrong with me. Yeah, I agree. And I think as parents raising kids who struggle with learning differences, ADHD, their mental health, a parent often feels isolated, like they're the only family yeah. at that time struggling and having a hard time. Yeah. And the stats that you're sharing with us is that's not true, yeah. right? Yeah. There's uh, lots of kids who are having a hard time and lots of families who are trying to figure it out and lots of families um, don't share that and feel isolated, but the reality is it's not an isolated case. So that's why we're here to talk about it. We're here. And I, that is why I like to share openly to kind of destigmatize it because I think it's an old, old thing of where we think, you know, and not even always consciously, but like, like it's that better or worse thing, right? There's this ideal way to be. And so if, if we kind of hide these parts of ourselves or parts of our kids that we think, doesn't me- don't measure up to that ideal, right? right? And right. not always consciously, but it's because it's been stigmatized for so long. And I think that's when we we're all more open. Like, look at the numbers; it's impacting so many of us. So the more we can be vulnerable and share and be honest and support one another, it destigmatizes it, and it just creates the opportunity for a new way to look at it. Yeah, and for people to do better, right? Exactly. For kids yeah. to, they should not be feeling bad about who they are. Okay, Melissa, another part I wanted to talk to you about is your expertise in twice exceptional children. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is that? And can kids who are twice exceptional also have ADHD? Yes, great question. So twice exceptionality is going to be people who have one or more areas of giftedness combined with one or more learning differences. So that can be a combination of all kinds of things, right? So it's a very complex and unique profile. And um, absolutely, you can be ADHD and twice exceptional. You could be just twice exceptional, or you could be just ADHD. And so that's why it's, um, it's really important to be able to look through these evaluations parents get back with 
a fine tooth comb and really understand, okay, where are these symptoms? Where are these behaviors stemming from? Because it can get really convoluted. And a lot of the symptoms you see as ADHD look like giftedness and it's, and vice versa. So it's very um, important to really understand what's causing the behavior. So for example, inattentiveness is, could be, if you're gifted, it could be caused because you're, you're bored. If you're ADHD, it could be because you have difficulty sustaining attention, right? But it, right. the the symptom looks the same, but what's causing the symptom, right? Okay, so what is gifted? I'm thinking that it means a really high IQ. Does right. gifted mean something else? So yes, yeah, so that was the traditional like definition of giftedness. Now what we are understanding is that IQ is not the sole indicator of giftedness because these kids who are 2E oftentimes don't test well on these assessments for various reasons. So they can be, um, you know, highly capable in certain areas, yet that's not demonstrated in their scores because for various reasons in the way that they process information, it might not be a true indicator of their intelligence. Okay. Also, two E kids have asynchrony as kind of the hallmark of where you have really high scores and really low scores. So oftentimes those scores are averaged. And so kids appear average, even though they've got these high pockets of ability, if that makes sense. So looking at the subtests and understanding, like just because my IQ might be not technically in what we would consider a gifted range, if I've got these subtest scores and I'm in the 98th percentile for my visual spatial reasoning, I'm still considered gifted because I have these high abilities in a certain area. Okay. So I could see like a little bit of a trap, right? With especially ADHD kids where, um, where people feel like they're smart, they're just lazy, right? So you, you get into trying to understand like where your child is at, right? Because ADHD kids are smart. They all have at least an average or higher IQ. So it's really important to kind of tease out, right? Again, I guess if you're feeling like your child's exceptional or has giftedness to really go get that tested, Mm-hmm. right? That's right. kind of the message. Right. Yeah. Because, or it, I think like the, where the strength-based um, testing to figure out really where they are excelling right. at versus struggling. Right. Because a twice exceptional child can struggle in some aspects of life and then they excel in other aspects. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So that's the two exceptionalities. It's the two ends of the spectrum. So they've got the areas where they're really, really excelling, and then they have those areas where they struggle. So it's both. So that's the complexity. And so oftentimes the areas where they struggle can kind of mask the areas that they're really have high aptitude and vice versa. So like, for example, a gifted child with ADHD may not, the ADHD may not show up maybe until they're older because they were able to compensate. Yet maybe they got to that point in high school or college where the their attention resources were just maxed out. There was too much pulling at them. The, the rigor got too hard. They had too much extracurricular. And it was just kind of that tipping point where those ADHD traits that were kind of brewing under the surface that they were able to keep at bay 
are brought out to the light. And so that would be an example of where their high ability masked their area of challenge. Does that make sense? Yep. And then it eventually kind of caught up to them. The executive functioning that happened, the organization and planning that happens with ADHD catches up with them in high school or college. Right. 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 Okay. And that's where then parents and the, and the child need to come to terms with how they're really wired. Right. Right. To put the right support around them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like a dance, you know, it's really, it's challenging. It is. It's complicated. Okay. So let's uh, move into accommodations that you recommend when a child um, needs to get their homework done at home. I feel like this is, you know, the biggest challenge for parents when their child does have ADHD, whether they're twice exceptional or not, but like, what do you, what are some hot tips that you have to help a parent help their child get the homework done in a timely manner? Right. Timely, timely. That's (laughs) that's the challenging part. Um, So I always say, don't make them do their homework the second they walk in the door from school. They're already exhausted. They're going to have attention fatigue from being on all day and they need time to decompress. So you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you actually let them get some of that energy out when they first get home. Or you know, it comes back to that strength base. What is it that fills up their cup? It might be different for, for different kids, but, you know, we know that getting outside in nature, we know that moving our bodies, that regulates our nervous system. Kids who play more literally of higher levels of dopamine, which, you know, these are ADHD kids. We know they're already, they're already battling that deficiency in dopamine. So allowing them to get outside and play and kind of regulate themselves is going to help them to be more grounded and present to actually tackle the harder stuff. Um, And then, you know, bringing back in the the strength-based approach into the homework routine, it's really, I suggest it to be a collaborative process. Like let the child feel like they have a sense of buy-in into the situation. Like, okay, let's lay it out. Here's what we've got to get done. Um, I love something called backwards planning where it's like, okay, start with the end goal first. We want to be done by six o'clock. We eat dinner. Here are, what do we have tonight? We've got 20 minutes of spelling, 10 minutes of math, whatever, you know, lay out the things that need to get done and then come up with a plan. Like, okay, so here's what we need to do. Here's the problem. You get squirrely and don't want to, you know, it's hard to sit for that long. So we need to incorporate some breaks and set up a schedule and it can be fluid and and creative, you know, but like set up a schedule where the child has buy into the plan and there are breaks set up for them to, to move their bodies, to get outside, to do those things. Maybe it's getting creative and like, you need to do your reading. Let's do, let's create an outdoor reading nook where you can also be outside and get your reading done. So it's really about individualizing and creating an after-school plan that can be fluid, flexible, that the kid has buy-in to, and there's a balance of getting done what needs to get done by a certain time while mixing in those breaks that the child needs and chunking the tasks into more manageable pieces. Right. And maybe helping them chunk down the task. Exactly. I think the struggle is parents think that their child should just be independent, like a typical child, right? And that's not... That's just not going to be the reality. 
I will tell you, so I'm finishing up my master's in cognitive diversity right now. And I will tell you as an adult, and I, you know, I'm an adult with strategies, right? I've been doing this for 44 years. I should know what to do. And if it's a course that I'm highly interested in, I can hyper-focus, get in my zone. I had to take a statistics class for a research project, and that was not my jam. And so I was reminded of that I'm not interested in this. And it was just a pocket I have to get through, you know, to do the stuff I yeah. love. How hard it is when you're, for a person with ADHD, when you are not interested, like maintaining that focus is challenging. So I had to like, I set, I set myself up for success by creating a group of some friends in my class. Like every Friday, let's do a study group. And there was accountability. It made it a little more fun. Um, and so I think it's just- It's a great it, idea. You know, kids do need in those areas that they struggle, that accountability is needed. And so sometimes as parents, we kind of have to be that that person or set them up so they have that. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of knowing where you're going to have challenges and where you can lean out and let them kind of be independent and where you do need to lean in because they do need help. Yeah, they need the support. Yeah. Okay, Melissa, tell us about like, right, kids with ADHD and writing. Okay. Why can that be hard? Yeah. Um, okay. So again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Here is with writing, the best way to get kids to buy into writing is to try to get creative and how you can make it something they're interested in. So like, for example, a child has to write about sports and the child hates sports. I'm talking from a personal example here. And how can we, what I know about this child is that their strength is emotional intelligence. Their, their interpersonal skills are great. So she picked writing about the history of tennis, but the whole thing was torture because she has no interest in the subject. So how can we bring somehow grasp it. Like, how can we tie this into what she's interested in? So it was like, okay, let's talk about Serena and Venus Williams and the dynamics of their family and, you know, bring in those interpersonal relationships and moral dilemmas and how that led to her success as a tennis player. So it's like getting creative and how can we weave in their strengths, their interests into the topic? Because like we know with people with ADHD, if we're not interested, it is hard. Yeah. So I would say that's step one. I love storyboarding. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's um, a way of laying out what you want to say through illustration. So it almost looks like a comic. So you can lay out kind of the sequence of what you want through visual graphics and just short words and sentences, and then retell it to someone and then add to it. And it's just a way of kind of organizing your thoughts in a way that feels less daunting, less pressure. And if a kid is creative, which a lot of our ADHD kids are, it's actually something they're going to enjoy. Um, and then oh, that's couple, interesting. Yeah. And then do you do speech to text on your story? Yes. And I was going to, you can. So I would say that would be like the next step, like would be now, once I've got my layout for what I want to write, brain dump through voice to text where you don't worry about the grammar. You don't worry about the spelling, but get that stuff out. Cause so often we have these big creative complex ideas that get stuck and there's a disconnect between the ideas and the writing. So if we right. have a safe space where we can just get it out, we're not worrying about spelling or grammar. We can go back and, you know, fine tune that later, but let's get all that good stuff out 
through voice to text. The other thing I love is something called Stimurite, which is a free app. And um, it's great for kids with ADHD because it provides that um, stimulation feedback. So like as you type, you can pick, um, it can make different audio effects as you type. It might sound like bubbles as you're typing the keys or a typewriter. And then you could pick um, different visuals for the background that might have different images or colors. You can change the font. Um, it's um, just very interactive and it provides that stimulation that kids with ADHD okay. love. And it just makes um, getting those ideas out a little more interesting. Yeah. It doesn't make the task seem so boring. Right. right? My right. numbing work. Exactly. Okay. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what if your child has a hard time though, organizing their thoughts, right? Yeah. It's just like, what would you recommend yeah. to a parent if they're seeing that their child's just really having a hard time, like putting the story yeah. in order? Yeah. I love graphic organizers because they're visual, they're creative, there's less pressure, you know, there's nothing, you can move things around, you can add, you can take away. It's, um, it's just a nice way of, of trying to organize your ideas as sort of like a pre-writing process. Also just talking like orally, you know, talking out what you want to say or, um, engaging in kind of like a debate type situation about, depending on the topic, obviously of the assignment, but you know, there's a lot to be said for when you hate writing orally, getting those thoughts and ideas out. And, and maybe it's, you know, depending on developmentally where the child's at, maybe the child's talking and, and the parents helping to graphic organizer, that could be a scaffolding tool to get that child to eventually doing that on their own. Yeah. So. That's a great tip. That's a great tip. Okay. We're almost out of time. Okay. So I want you to help us wrap up with your overall wisdom of how a parent can best support their nerd neurodivergent child, like what's the advice, the wisdom here? So the number one thing I'm going to say is look for their strengths. We all have them. You don't need a formal evaluation to do this. Like you, as parents, no one knows our children better than us, right? So it's where do they naturally thrive? Where are they naturally happy? What are they naturally good at? What are they drawn to? And how can I get creative as the parent to bring that into their world, into their life more often? How can I, these things that are hard, these things that are sticky, that are going to come up, how can I soften that in any way by bringing in their strength and interest into the equation and allowing them to have those pockets of joy in their life each day? Because that is going to build confidence. That is going to allow them to feel seen and valued for the things that they're good at. And like I said before, when, we, when we've when we got that, it just makes it a little bit easier to get through the hard stuff. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I like how you advocate um, for children and you, you can do tests that um, find their strengths because I do think one or two parents after going through just formal testing, um, it can be, you can feel a little helpless, right? And it's so important to focus on what is working and find, help your child find their way. Right. Right. School's not the, so school's not the dead end. Right. Road to nowhere. It doesn't need to be like that. It doesn't need to be. And so many of, you know, our, our biggest contributors to society who have done amazing things have been neurodivergent and have had 
um, really tough times in school, have dropped out of school even, you know, and um, because the way that they thought and the gifts that they had weren't valued and nurtured in those more traditional settings. So it's really about honoring that just because your child's gift might not be something that is typically valued in a traditional classroom environment doesn't mean that that's not a valuable gift. That doesn't mean it's not worth nurturing and might someday serve them and be something that they contribute in the world. Yeah, well said. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is so fun.